3: I guess, kind of change in perspective that comes with being a parent that makes you walk around with your pockets full of sticks and all of that stuff. They will say to other kids, are like, look, some people have a daddy and a papa and some people have just a mummy and they just have this kind of way of contextualising that there are different families. The realness of our families is the thing that matters. Hello
2: and welcome to Some Families. We are a one-stop shop for all your queer parenting qualms and queries. My name, hello listener, is Stu Oakley and I'm here with my gorgeous co-host, Lottie
1: Jeffs. Hello, hello Stu, welcome to Some Families. Can you believe this is our second to last episode of the season? Oh, I can't believe it. What would we do without this weekly get-together? No,
2: it's so weird and here we are again at the end of Series 2 pretty much doing remote recording at home and also can I just add being very aggressively told that our meeting is being recorded by the new zoom lady voice which scares the (laughs) life out of me every time it comes on but yeah but I've really you know we've got one more episode to go but what a fab series we've had so far um yeah save
1: it save your reflections for next week babe save it but yeah
2: but how have you been how have you been this week Lottie
1: I've been good. I have discovered a new TV show that I'm enjoying with my daughter called Bluey, who is just like, I mean, just blows Peppa Pig out of the water in terms of like how sexist and heteronormative Peppa Pig is. You know my feelings on Peppa. Oh, don't get you started. No, Bluey is basically like, it's, it's an Australian cartoon, it's just come onto BBC iPlayer and i'm not the only one that loves it by the way there was a whole article on the guardian about how great it was but it's like uh, and, a mum a mum dad and two girl dogs but just the the subtleties of the gender dynamics between the mum and the dad are just great like it's just small things that like the dog dad comes in in the morning doing he's got a big pile of washing that he's folding and the mum's the one that goes out to hockey nice. with her sister while the two dads stay home and look after nice. the kids and end up having to pretend to be the kids make them be getting married and so the dad and his brother there's an episode where the dad and the brother have to pretend to be horses who are getting married to each other and they're just such good sports and they did whereas something like paper pig it's just all so boring and like Ugh, normative and isn't it so yeah. And I've found my parenting, what's the word? Not role model, my parenting like equivalent. I see myself reflected back at me <laughs> in Bluey's dad. I'm like, oh my God, that's so me. He just comes in in the morning. He's always like singing stupid songs and being like, like fun dad. <laughs> and he's always, what he does that I really relate to is he always is getting like really into the imaginary games. That his kids are doing and is having to like perform as the oh, characters so that cute. they tell him that he must be. And you're it,
2: such a good mum, you're such a good like that is you. That's like I love the imaginative play that you that's have. That's definitely it's something so that I feel like
1: I can do, like I can get really into and storytelling and all that side of things. So, anyway, Bluey, check it out if you haven't seen it. It's, it's almost like picking up where Hey Dougie is left off for us, okay? And there's just a sense of humour. To it Mm. and a sort of kindness that I really like. Um, Nice. So yeah, it's a shame that the same
2: can't be said about Drag Race Down Under, which
1: oh was it not good?
2: Oh, just uh, yeah, not great. Really? (laughs) Yeah, it's just finished, and maybe it's
1: just that the format's getting exhausted. I don't think so. I think it was just I I think they're you know. Bit ropey
2: but anyway oh, no, i don't, don't have all of it anyway off topic
1: how's but, your week been when you've been being a parent we should talk more in series three if we do a series three we should talk more about like ourselves and our lives outside of parenting because we're always like how's your week been and it's like well i changed all these yes. mappies and i did this and it's like actually no listener Stu and i are fully formed human beings who exist in the world Outside of our children.
2: Who are we kidding?
3: <laughs>
2: I yeah, I've what, just <laughs> told the world that I'm like essentially a cartoon yeah, dad. Exactly. You're just all about Bluey. But um no, actually, something really nice today. It sounds like two old men, it sounds like. But because I'm working from home at the moment, and John's obviously working from home, my husband, and the kids were all out today at their various chart binders, stroke nursery, stroke school. And he just messaged me and he was like, Oh, on my lunch break, I need to pop to the local garden center. He was like, Do you want to come? And we can get a coffee and walk around the garden center. And so we did that. And we never do that. Like, we Aww. never do that. And it was just so nice. I mean, we were in the car and I was like, This is the first time we've been in the car together on our own in, I reckon, a year without the kids in the back. It was a really weird, like, wow. home alone you had a date feeling. Day. Yeah, it was a date. To have, like our lunch, lunch lunchtime at the garden center, looking at plants. I mean, I felt like I was about eighty, but it was very cute. And yeah, I had a really. Nice
3: it
1: is time. important to have those times where you it just is. connect as two people, rather than. I
2: mean, all we parents. talked about was the kids. Yeah. <laughs> it's always the same. It's all we talked about, but then. Um, And actually, really nice this weekend, we went out with um, a couple of local gay dads, which, you know me, listener, and Lottie, yeah, like, we had a mutual friend that introduced us ages ago. And it's the first time we've properly met up with the kids and it was it was lovely because, you know, you're always out socialising with, like, randoms oh on the street. Friend. Or, I'm desperate. i like, befriend anyone. <laughs> people you're meeting on mum's apps, like, yeah. like you know, things like that. But I never do it, so it was really nice to do. And it was actually the first time that um, our children had met uh, other parents who were two dads. Ooh, and how did that go?
1: Were they sort of interested so, in it? Did they like
2: it? Yeah, it was so nice and my daughter said to me I was tucking her in bed that night and she said no I was we were reading I think it might have been my daddy's um the Gareth and Gary book and we were reading it I said to her oh and it's like your friend that you met today has two daddies and she went yeah she was like we're matching pairs I was like
1: oh "Oh that's so sweet
2: so cute, matching pairs. I mean, how how old are their kids?
1: They are the same age?
2: Just one, a boy who is six, a so similar age to my daughter. But obviously, my middle son was like looking up to him and like loved oh, like so playing sweet. with him. It was really sweet, and look forward to building that relationship and with the kids especially. So yeah, you know they were on the swings talking about which daddy farts the loudest and which daddy has the smelliest farts and it was hilarious it was oh. quite funny she was like my daddy has that too and I have two dad it was really sweet oh my god really that's sweet.
1: adorable <laughs> so talking about sort of parenting and who we are as people and as not parents farts. and yeah <laughs> not not farts. That. today's episode we're talking to the author of a new book called small on motherhoods which is written by a woman called Claire Lynch. And the book is essentially her memoir, and it's an exploration of motherhood and motherhoods. The plural is quite important, as she'll explain, and how we, the or, or the ongoing process of becoming mothers or becoming parents. And the book is called Small because she uses this sense of, of the smallness of the process somehow of fertility like the smallness of the egg of the test tube of um the small decisions that you make that lead you up to this big decision but You kind of contrast this this idea with the enormity of what it is to bring a child into the world however you however you do so so We will be talking to Claire momentarily.
2: Claire and her wife have three daughters, two twins and a younger two-year-old, and they live in Windsor. Claire and her wife had their children via reciprocal IVF, something which now I know loads about. (laughs) I'm so proud of yourself for that, aren't you? I'm basically an expert listener, so I am. Her book is out now. It came out last week, and we're going to put a link to it in the show notes as well.
1: So without further ado, here is Claire. So welcome, Claire, to Some Families. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me.
2: I can't wait to delve into your new book that has literally just hit the shelves, but before we do, we just want to ask a little bit about yourself and your family. Sure.
3: Well, uh, as the children like to tell people, we are a girl family. So it's uh, <laughs> me and my wife, Bethan, and we have three daughters, five-year-old twins. And then the little one is two.
1: Amazing.
3: And we'll yeah. get more into this as we talk about sure. your, your book. But would you mind sharing with us how your children came into the world? Absolutely. Yeah. So they were conceived by a reciprocal IVF which I know has been discussed on the on the podcast before, and via an anonymous donor. So I guess the kind of interesting thing about that too is that they were actually all conceived at the same time, through the same cycle. And so that, you know, but obviously with the gap between uh, the older two and, and our little one. But it was a it was a, a long process that kind of that sentence, I suppose, kind of makes it sound as if it was a, a sort of straightforward tick box exercise, which is far from the case. But that, that process was quite important to us, I think, to kind of be involved, you know, in the pregnancy. So both. did you carry or was it your partner? No, Beth carried. So they are the, biologically my children, I suppose, if you want to kind of use those terms. And she's the birth mother. Wow. So many questions. Let's talk about the book quickly. Yeah, it's called Small and the subtitle is on on motherhoods. And I think that kind of plural motherhoods is really important, actually, that it's obviously, you know, two mothers in our family, but also thinking about all the different kinds of parenting that can kind of come under that that heading. Um, It's called that, I guess, because it's about all of the small things that make up parenting. So, you know, we've already discussed the kind of beginning stage. And I think when you're going through trying to get pregnant in whatever method you're going about, that that kind of focus on, you know, the cells and the real detail of how you're going to make that happen can become quite, you know, all consuming. And then, as you know, once the children are here, I mean, in this case, our children were premature also. So we had the kind of smallness of them when they were in uh, neonatal and then now they're, you know, older, all of the small things that matter so much to them, you know, so the kind of the way that they see the world, the way that they make us see the world, I guess, kind of change in perspective that comes with being a parent that makes you walk around with your pockets full of sticks and all of that stuff <laughs> I found a kazoo in my pocket this morning yeah standard I can't believe you're showing up about that yeah. who, who didn't like, find a kazoo in the... their pocket this morning? Yeah. although fun
2: fact the kids got given a kazoo the other day and I had no idea how to blow it I realized they never knew how to blow a kazoo but they all did and they thought it was like some kind of magic spell because they could make a sound out of kazoo I was just like
3: Next. <laughs> yeah, I think the question is who, who hates you so much that they gave your kids a kazoo that's really... <laughs> that's actually kind of an interesting segue into something
1: we wanted to get onto talking about about how like our past experiences and our childhoods shape us as parents it's something you explore in the book and obviously Stu never came across a kazoo and um, I
2: was deprived, kazoo deprived child.
3: Can you talk a bit to that idea and, and how you explore that in the book? Yeah I mean one of the things I was interested in when I was writing it is actually the so the older two like I said are five, five and a half they'd probably like me to say for the record and that means that they're kind of getting closer to an age that I really remember so the kind of the way that they're playing the things that matter to them are now things that I remember mattering you know to me also right so in fact as I'm talking to you now I'm kind of hoping that the noise of like an intense sylvanian families game is not going to break (laughs) into the (laughs) into the background of the of the podcast but all of that I think kind of returns you to kind of remembering the things that I think when you're a small person when you're a small child you know, all of the kind of drama that happens in the playground, that it's very easy for parents to brush aside. But when you remember how it felt for you, when you remember that kind of feeling of the scale of things as relative to your position in the world, the same thing with the two-year-old, you know, the things that will knock a two-year-old to the ground in a tantrum. And, you know, it's very easy when you're an adult to just be like, the the biscuit is still fine, right? It's still a biscuit but if it's broken in two now and they just want to destroy everything around them because the biscuit is now not the thing you know that it was promised to be and you've got to find some way to manage that as a parent haven't you and you can either mm. be frustrated all the time or you can kind of remember now I get that actually definitely like tapping into those feelings mm-hmm. yeah or yeah. kind of seeing yeah. what it is to cope with that
2: well, it sounds like what you're just it's almost like as adoptive parents what we go through the training of a therapeutic parenting Mm. and really understanding what could be going through a child's head as they're having that tantrum or they're saying what they're saying not necessarily that I live by those rules day by day but because it's very easy to fall out of that um Mm. but when you're under
1: pressure yeah.
2: yeah yeah it's trying to take yourself back in that moment to go actually hang on Like, they are a little person, as you say, and that's what's in their world is so different. That's
1: why I think the title of your book, Small, and that idea of smallness in relation to the enormity of parenting is really interesting and a really new way into talking about fertility and parenting and stuff. So we've talked there about, you know, these are ostensibly really small things that happen every day. Someone drops a biscuit, something happens in the playground, but... Once you really access you know those memories in yourself and you start thinking about how your child's feeling how you're reacting to your child, suddenly it's huge, so I think it's so interesting in your book that you've got the duality
3: of the bigness of it and the everyday smallness of it yeah, I mean you've described it really well actually because I mean what I wanted to get to was that that contradiction exactly as you're mm-hmm. saying you know that there are these moments of you know where it all feels kind of profound and you're like dealing with these brand new people and you're trying to show them the world and then it's kind of mundane, like it's the PE kit washed. That happens within the same five minutes, you know, and you're dealing with that all the time. Kind of how you how can you explore what it is to love these people in this way that is kind of overwhelming? also be kind of driven mad that they won't kind of rinse the shampoo out of their hair when you need them to, or all of that kind of back and forth that you're living through, the big and the small all the time. And I think we need to let ourselves talk about that, actually, because, you know, the practical stuff is there and we can help each other. But sometimes acknowledging the enormity of the emotion of of parenthood, I think people can be a bit sort of, it's easier to make fun of it, right? It's easier to kind of say it's a jokey thing and not, you know, let ourselves say you know what's hard about it is that constant movement between the the nothingness (laughs) and the kind of huge emotion that comes with it and also moving between the
1: past and the present in Mm. the sense of like everything we do as parents you know we're coming out from our own collage of experiences as children and and as adults and especially as queer people it's not like we're suddenly like a parent and our own identity that's been shaped from years of everything else that's happened to us falls away and it's like interesting sometimes negotiating, I think, that idea of ourselves as parents and who we are and what we've done in the past. There's a beautiful bit that you open the book with, which if you'll forgive me for reading your own book back to you, which I know from having a original <laughs> book myself is, can be very uh, embarrassing. I'll close write, my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't this in the end how families work? Each of us caught up in tangles of ourselves. Past and presence all at once, memories of who we have been, small clues that hint at who we might become. I think that's a really beautiful way of of summing up that that idea that we just that we just talked about
3: that that part of it too, I suppose, is that awareness of the pace of, of change in family life and you know you're or you're so aware aren't you of the kind of the children as they are now, but also how quickly they're moving into being these other people that sometimes you get those kind of flashes of of who they might be. So I mean, it's, it's it's sort of a, a running joke in our house, I suppose. But you know, when you see these kind of three sisters battling over, you know, my little ponies or whatever it is now, and you think I can see now <laughs> already, like what that turns into when you're teenagers or what that turns into when you're fully grown women kind of supporting each other, I hope, but probably also rowing over something. And that that kind of you're still versions of who you've always been. But you're also going to be these other people that And we'll also be changing alongside you right so that's a really powerful thing I think to kind of keep in mind is that we're all all, we're all doing that as a family remaking ourselves or kind of changing in relation to one another
2: yeah that sense of transitioning as a family you're constantly transitioning Mm. and actually it's something we talked about in a recent episode with non-binary parent Peyton and her feelings on how we do transition as parents at this moment in time how would you think, and how would you want your daughters to kind of describe you and kind of position you as a person? Is that something that you've thought about?
3: Oh God, I would say that they are at the moment the older ones fascinated with the idea of kind of who we were before we had them They will are they want to know for example places that we I suppose it's because we've all been so locked down, but they're kind of fascinated with hearing like places that we were we went before we <laughs> before we had them, or the people that we were. Um, that's so sweet yeah maybe it's just because of Gojetters. it's hard to say but you know they <laughs> they, they like you know they, they like that kind of idea of they, they want to make sense of their own story I think by seeing their beginning as our beginning that's so
2: interesting that's not something and I think Lottie the same with your reaction that's not something that has actually just thinking about it now has ever come up we we look at the world map and we talk about the places we've been with them mm. or the places where different people live and but I've never sat down, and we talk, and then through adoption as well. There's obviously we talk so much about their life story and where they've been, and their yeah. Their, what about ge- you? I know. <laughs> yeah. Because how
1: fabulous you used to be before you had three kids.
2: This is what I'm thinking. I think I've missed a trick here. But just in in terms of what you know, you're saying, Claire. I mean, that must help them so much understand who you are as a fuller being, and actually how refreshing it would have been to have known what my mum and dad got up to before me and grown up with that knowledge rather than yeah. finding out about it in my late teens or early 20s when I started to become interested Maybe in Maybe that's
3: that. a really nice thing to share with them actually. Mm. I mean I want to be clear it's not like I've got a slideshow running of like you know <laughs> <laughs> and here's mummy and mama on the Eiffel Tower or whatever like let's, let's all admire that. I think it's it's just. Um, that's what I'm
2: thinking that's what I'm yeah, I mean that's right what you, right you you should yeah. do
3: yeah a, a lecture series about your past but I mean I think it's just a kind of like a positioning thing isn't it and I think Mm -hmm. they love talking about their own story I suppose and I think it's just it's just part of that and I mean I think it's in this case I think it's very much the prologue of they love the story of you know they like to say oh we were in mummy's tummy when we were tiny eggs and then we were in mama's tummy and that's the you know it's all part of that kind of story of of who they are and where they fit into the world yeah when did you start talking to them about that I think it kind of came up mostly when Beth was pregnant with uh, our youngest daughter. So I think then the older two, who would have been like three then, you know, it made sense to them that they could kind of understand this narrative in relation to their little sister and that it's the same story. And I think, I don't know, I mean, I think it's just always been part of their sense of who they are. Let's get into a bit about, if you don't mind, more of the the
1: detail of the process, because it's something that, that really resonated for me, reading your book small, and having had a few tries doing IVF myself, unsuccessfully, sadly. But just the way you talk about being in the room. And I'm sure a lot of women listening to this will have probably been to the same clinic. And it (laughs) seems from reading it, that it's the same clinic. And I was like, I have been in that room. I have had that anaesthetist say that exact same thing to me. And I've had that feeling of doing the egg collection and going under and the detail of, of your experience of, of IVF. Did it work first time for you? And how did you, because obviously, so you were doing the egg collection How did
3: you find the injections and the process and everything? We tried all sorts of different ways and over a long, long period of time. I think less catchy subtitle for the book would have been all the naive things that Claire thought that turned out to be (laughs) a load of old rubbish. Because I think we were really naive. I think we thought that we were healthy and of the right age. And all we had was this kind of missing ingredient to fix the the problem of becoming parents. It's an aspect that we don't talk about all that much, actually, is that there's No reason at all why a queer woman wouldn't also have unexplained infertility or any version of infertility. And it does need addressing, I think, really, because, you know, the idea that it's a technical matter of just sort of turning up at the clinic and handing over the credit card, I think it can can lead people to unnecessary levels of stress and the kind of grief of it, I think, if 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 you start in that position, whereas I suppose if there is an advantage... If it's not inappropriate to say this, you know, a a straight couple who've been trying for a long time and know that they need IVF are kind of going into that from a position of, you know, being ready for help and expecting it to be difficult. You know, maybe that's an an, an unreasonable thing to say, but you know. I think
1: so. I I think you're right. Yeah. Mm. Especially when you're sort of somebody that like is used to things going your way in life or being able to assert some control over things. Yeah. It can be really hard. I mean, I really struggled with the fact that like, It's like the sperm is literally being put into the egg and then being put back in exactly the right place. And you're telling me it still hasn't worked. It's so frustrating because you just think, how the hell does anyone ever get pregnant? And and it's hard for me because it worked first time for my wife with Mm. IUI. And then I've done, IUI wasn't working for me and, and IVF hasn't worked for me either. So it just feels like an absolute miracle that it worked at all. Mm. for my wife and now i just feel like when i've done it it's like doing this weird like pretend test game where it's the i the fact that it's ever going to actually be a potentially a child is just not in it it's like trying to pass a test
3: and i think the the kind of sex education narrative that we all grow up on is that you know it's it's dangerously easy to get pregnant and you better watch Mm. out that you don't get pregnant to sort of find out that the truth might not be you know as straightforward i think is i think is a shocking thing to have to to deal with i mean you asked me about the injections and things like that i I think actually when i think back on it now i am i don't know what the word is i think kind of shocked at how willing i was just to do everything and anything Mm -hmm. so if they know when they Mm -hmm. said you know there's this extra procedure it's going to be uncomfortable and expensive I would say well you know here's the money or there's you know these injections are more painful fine I'll do whatever you know and so I think when you're in that world and almost the more you're doing it and the more (laughs) the more unsuccessful it is the more you're trapped then
1: yeah there's a great quote Uh, in your book where you say each failed attempt was a lesson in reality another dent in our hope I spent hours then lurking on online forums scouring the potted biographies of strangers for tips and clues eat pineapple core try acupuncture buy flaxseed women still trying after 10 11 12 cycles of unsuccessful treatment a commitment an addiction I think that really will probably resonate for a lot of our our listeners because when do you stop like that's a question I've been asking myself. I mean, obviously, when the money runs out. But let's say money is no object.
2: The addiction quote within that as well, I find really interesting. Just as a as a bystander to obviously, I, I it's not something I, the process is not something I've ever been through. But it's something I'm learning and educating myself on through Lottie and guests like yourself. But I've never really thought of it in that sense of it being like an addiction because you are yeah, going it does
3: become like an obsession, yeah. doesn't it? Mm you know in a practical sense it's taking over everything that you're doing and thinking all the time you're thinking well we can't travel to that wedding or we can't go to this work thing because you know we'll be needed for this appointment and i think you're i think people are willing to make physical and emotional and financial sacrifices that are not always wise much as people in addiction do the same because there's always that kind of sense of, well, maybe this time will be the time. Yeah, it's
1: like waiting for a
3: bus. You're like, if I just... Yeah, yeah, exactly. As soon as you
1: walk away from the bus stop. <laughs> exactly. and,
2: then, and then twins come along. Exactly. Yeah, well...
0: <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get thirty? Thirty? Ready to get thirty? Ready to get twenty? 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 How to get twenty? Twenty? How to get fifteen? 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 Just fifteen bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of thirty percent off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy?
2: Can I ask you both a question? I'm just really interested, we talk, you know, we're talking about the emotion of how you feel and thinking back about, you know, that feeling of going into the clinic and feeling and not expecting anything to be going wrong. Like you said, you're going in thinking, right, this is what we're going to do and X, Y, and Z, and we're going to get pregnant. What was that feeling like the moment you found out things weren't going in the way that you thought? Do you remember how you feel? And, and would you... Uh, create that to a part of grief potentially as well mm. for mourning something that you felt was it yeah easy it's volume. almost like
1: mourning something that you never had mourning the idea of something mourning a dream it's a strange kind of grief
3: I think would you agree Claire I would and I think there's also these kind of waves of that that maybe in, in my case I'm sure that there was kind of a stage maybe when I was a, a teenager or a much younger person coming out thinking would this be part you know it's a thing I want but will it be part of my future, and then reaching a stage where you think, well, sure, now it's fine, and I can go to this clinic, and then, hang on a minute, the the fairy tale is not working out Mm -hmm. as I had planned or anticipated, and one of the things I think that's really interesting is that we're probably among, I don't know if if it's the first generation, maybe, of queer people where kind of in-laws might be kind of saying, well, where are the children? Probably, like, quite heteronormative expectations that you might have children are also... On you, and so I think that was that was also a kind of strange thing that we were, we were always kind of playing this game of some people not expecting that at all, so you could just be doing this quietly in the background and not not share that grief when actually that probably would have helped to have that support, but also somehow that element of it being quite difficult to explain because just as we've said, if we were naive walking into it <laughs> then other people also have that assumption that it's, it's an easy thing to do. Another thing that resonated for me with your book and, and the
1: idea of smallness is staring at that tiny window on a pregnancy test and just willing it like these tiny little lines, like one line or two lines, and just like staring at this tiny window and then the result of these lines being like such an enormous thing, like either your life's going to change and you're going to have a child or it's just not. And that's just something that really resonated for me and just remembering myself and the times I've stared at that window and just been like, just another line. Just two lines, two lines, come on, two lines. And then it's just one line. You're like, for fuck's sake. And to answer your question, Stu, about how that feels like, I think in that moment of like seeing one line and wishing that it was two, for me, it feels like not passing a test. It feels like getting, I've always been like a really annoying high achiever. So it feels like getting a C.
3: But isn't it much worse than a C, right? Because it's like you've been revising for an A, right? And yeah. you've, been, you've been not drinking the wine and you've exactly. been going to the, the stupid yoga or whatever the thing is you've been doing and yeah. then you get an F anyway. It's, it's an you F. Know, mm. Mm. And that's one of the things I wanted to write about is that there's no, that, you know, effort does not equal success in this yes. and that's a really so difficult true. concept to kind of get your head around, you know. Yeah. Especially when you are, if you're, in a, if you're in a couple and you're doing this and you're really working hard on thinking about Oh, we'd be such good parents and these are the parents we would be and we want this so much. And you're kind of all, always in a world where everyone seems to be accidentally getting pregnant. So that kind of clash between all the effort that you're putting in and the <laughs> the lack of success all the same. Maybe that's why I couldn't answer that question very much about what the ch- how the children would describe me or what they would say about that. Is because I think that probably filters into the kind of parent you become, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of consciousness of that process. And I'm sure the same is true if you're an adoptive parent, that you're conscious all the time of look at all we did (laughs) to show you how much we loved you. And now how do I keep on negotiating that for the rest of your life? yeah you know? god you don't want
1: to be the parent
3: that's like <laughs> that's really you've got no
1: idea what i did exactly. to you yeah. into the world exactly. and the kid's like i didn't ask
3: to be born e- exactly and you're like it cost me <laughs> fifty thousand pounds at the london women's clinic to have you <laughs> exactly you can't be that person and nor can you be we're the really you know the awful. sort of we loved you so much before you were born or before you came to join our family this is you know totally. you just
1: can't yeah to, when people talk about like talking to the kids about how special they are it sometimes worries me like i don't i feel like it's not something i want to tell my kid is like i don't want there to be a sense of like preciousness about her and maybe mm. you feel the same with adoption too. of like you don't want to go too far down like you're really special and mm. different
2: yeah it's a fine line and the word lucky as well is something when it mm. comes to adoptive families that I think is a is a kind of wince word for a lot of people as well like I can
1: imagine
3: yeah
2: they're so lucky to have you as parents or you're so lucky to have them and it's like there's so much depth to that that's really interesting that you
3: say that actually Stu because one of the the wince word for me is my the, the kind of people who say they're just miracles Mm. they're miracle children and you're like well no <laughs> <I> <laughs> that's mean, a lot to
1: have on your shoulders as a child yeah, like, isn't it? let's
3: all just calm down I mean yeah. you know this is the science is a miraculous thing and you know we could be grateful to have access to that yeah. and whatever but it's it it, it also just kind of differentiates right it's it's unnecessary
2: and it's a weight of expectation for them Mm. to carry in the future right like to think that they're miracle children it's like oh god am i just going to be disappointing you at every single turn because i'm not the miracle child you wanted me to be yeah exactly it's so laden
1: how do you talk to your girls claire about the fact that they've got two mums and do you have any advice for people like myself who have uh, younger children that the questions are just sort of occurring now
3: yeah I mean it was a thing that we thought about and that you know you 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 do kind of not worry about in advance but kind of consider in an advance and in our case as soon as they could talk they just called us mummy and mama and they are really not just annoyed but perplexed if anyone can't get their heads around that you know I can imagine so, my
1: daughter being exactly the same
3: if someone will say oh you know your mummies are doing this they're like well no we don't have two mummies right this is our mummy and this is our mama like, they are different people. Why is that not clear to you, I think? And we're lucky, I think, that they just have operated in quite a confident way about that all along and they just have a sense. And they will say to other kids, are like, look, some people have a daddy and a papa and some people have just a mummy and they just have this kind of way of contextualising that there are different families, right? And they just are so used to that that I think the only time that it is... I mean, it's more, at the moment, I think it's more kind of funny to see them... Engage with other kids about that, and just sort of be very straightforward and explain it. But I'm sure one of the things I kind of write about in the book is, that, you know, I'm sure kind of this will not be that easy forever. But maybe not. I mean, maybe they are just operating in a world where that. I mean, of course, that's the only that's their family. Mm. We're their parents.
2: To follow on from something else you said in the book, with that as well about, I think you talk about the donor and saying a prayer of thanks to to him as you blow out the candles etc how have you or have you not yet perhaps discussed the the donor's role within their creation and and what are your plans for that as well in the future
3: so far it hasn't been as much part of this the discussions just because I think technically I'm not sure that they would get their heads around that idea Just yet, I think what they're very clear on is that they were made if you like with lots of help right so I think they're very aware that you know the doctors had to collect eggs from me and that they had to be fertilized you know a scientist had to help and they had to be put back into mama 's tummy they, they're very aware of that as a as part of the story and I think that that will be the next thing that we talk about as they get a little bit older and in a practical sense you know i'm also aware that when they are 18, if they want to, they will be able to find out more about the donor. And one of the things that informed our choice was, was you know, trying to choose someone who you thought would be hopefully a good person to find. Yeah. I would be surprised if knowing their personalities already and hopefully knowing the way that we're open with one another, I'm sure they will want to do that as soon as they can. But I also have to feel confident that, that they will want us to do that with them. And to help them, and to be kind of part of that of that conversation, I think that's what you you have to kind of go into it with that open mindedness already there. I think, mm. um, you know, my, my only hope is that they will that, I, that they will wait till their younger sister is also old enough, so they can do it all together. You know, that that could yeah. be part of it. I
1: was thinking as you were talking, Claire, like there's going to be a time in probably like the next ten years when all of the people our age or in our sort of generation that have queer families that have used donors it's going to be a thing that happens to all of us and our
3: friends it'll be like has your kid met their donor yet it's really hard to know isn't it I think you've got to try and put yourself in that position and try and imagine you know what would you have done in that situation when you were 18 Mm. probably I mean I'm sure everyone would be kind of curious to find out maybe maybe they won't (laughs) <laughs> maybe they weren't <laughs> bothered yeah. i mean i don't know really yeah. um i think
2: it's the same with adoption and the the quest to find find out more about your birth family mm. and your what's
1: the deal with that with adoption are they can they get in touch with their birth family when they yeah whenever it's very, they
2: want to well it's very similar i mean it's each to each case mm-hmm. but generally it's it, i think it's similar as 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 you talked about the donor finding out as well like when they're 18 they can have access to their files and have names and details and be able to find whoever they want to find should they wish to there's been some really and it was interesting what you said Claire because it's always been something that comes up in the adoption world about supporting them through that and and being open and honest about it from as early as you can so that you can go on that journey with them so that Mm. you can so you can basically Hold their hand as they go through that journey. Mm. But there's been a lot, especially with social media. There was news stories a couple of weeks ago about uh, an adoptive family who, because of social media, their adoptive child found out early uh, their birth family's name, started to get in contact behind the adoptive Mm. parents' back through social media. They'd been with them for about 12, 10, 12 years, I think, then just broke down. And they now don't speak to them. They've kind of been semi-unofficially taken back in by the birth family who... Oh, no. They've gone on a downward spiral. So it's, it's, it's the importance of, I suppose, being aware of social media. It's not something we've ever really talked about in the sense of... Mm. I don't know how that works from a donor point of view. Yeah,
1: it's very... Protect, like, there's no way you'd know the name, the real name of the donor.
3: I think all, all you can really kind of do in these conversations is to say that what you're... The realness of our families is the thing that matters. When you kind of bring up the the, the point about their birthdays, the point is really it's almost only on their birthday that the thought kind of comes back to me. I want to kind of mark that in my own mind and I want to kind of respect and thank that person because our family wouldn't exist without him. Mm. But he's he's not in our family and he's not a person who will shape them and it and it will be a thing of interest to them I'm sure and it will be a thing that will be kind of part of our experience as a family you know later down the line but I think that kind of sense of the job of being a parent is so much more than biology right yes (laughs) and that's that's going to be a quote on our (laughs) (laughs) and that's why that's why I guess I kind of was a bit sort of stuttering when you asked me about how they were how we made our family or how they were conceived because I think, however, you describe that story, it kind of creates, an un, it creates a, a hierarchy that isn't relevant. That's why reciprocal IVF is kind of interesting, because the playing field is kind of leveled in some way, but it's also always kind of under question. So, in the book, one of the things I'm talking about, I guess, is how often, how easy it is to, or how easy it was for people to kind of sideline or ignore me. In those hospital situations, Mm. because Bethan was the pregnant woman, and rightly was the person who should have had all the focus on her. But I think for anyone to kind of manage to hold in their minds that also, you know, when they were born, for instance, having to always say, "Don't look at her blood group, (laughs) look at mine," right? Right. Or or, you know, when they're having their hearing tested when they were newborns, it's my family history that is the thing that you need to ask questions about, not hers. That must have just blown some health visitors yeah. minds because it's hard enough for some of them to get their head around two mums let alone yeah exactly that. I guess the whole point right that motherhood can be all of these different things at once mm.
1: Mm. you have a, a bit in the the book that we hoped you might read for us about your NCT
3: class sure well I wanted I wanted to read this bit because I think it is I guess kind of you know indicative of this situation where you know you can be kind of like misread as problematic when, you know, there you are trying to do your best to sort of find out about what it's going to be like to be a parent. So we went to antenatal classes like, I guess, a lot of parents do. And uh, this this was the experience. We arrive early for the first session, nervous, excited to meet the other new parents in waiting. Our teacher is setting up her flip chart and greets us, not with a welcome, but an apology. I'm just going to say sorry from the start, she blurts. I'm bound to say the wrong thing, you know, with the language about all of this. She gestures vaguely between our midriffs, indicating it seems that she is aware that we have the same genitals, and turns back to her flip chart. It's only several hours later that it occurs to me that this might have been our cue to ask for a refund and leave without further insult or expense. Instead, we take a seat. (laughs) Our guide to all things childbirth, Paula, wears the same wide fit sandals and blouse each week as if it were a uniform. She has two grown up children of her own and it's clear she will never be as happy again as she was when they were babies. It is equally clear that she doesn't know what to do with me. In fact, she suggests it might be better if I sit the first activity out. It can get really physical, she warns. She wouldn't want me to get hurt. At this unexpected announcement, the men in the group start to give each other sideways glances. At worst, they thought they might have to watch a birth video. Nobody said anything about bare-knuckle fighting. Lacking an alternative, I stride towards the circle, adopting a gait which suggests surprising physical strength, or at least hints, I hope, at a woman who might have been inter-county judo champion in her youth. I will stop there. (laughs) I I know I want you to keep (laughs) going. I mean, the whole point was that, she, you know, this kind of very weird idea that she had about kind of who mums and dads are and what they're expected to do was just, I think, kind of under a spotlight. You know, it wasn't a version of parenthood that matched any of the people in that room. It
1: makes everyone feel awkward, doesn't it? Like, Mm. we need to campaign for just better education and NCT and health NHS like it just needs to be better for queer mm. and non-binary people
3: yeah exactly and I, I mean I'm, I'm one of the things I wonder about this is we live in a you know a small town and you know maybe it was the first time that this antenatal class teacher had mm. had to deal with this situation
2: but I suppose the question is then do you think she actually would have changed if she had had two mothers in her next and you know, your class. Or, or
3: she'll probably be like, Oh, I've had a couple like you in before. Or something <laughs> like yeah, like yeah. That. I mean, yeah. I think that's what she did say. I mean, what happens next is that we have to join arms and pretend to be a cervix. So yeah, it gets <laughs> it only gets better from that point on. What happened, I guess, in that situation is that I had to be quite difficult. Like I had mm-hmm. to challenge and I had to say so there was a lot of mums and dads being separated and so I had to say, like, where do you want me to yeah. go? And so the problem with that is that you then kind of reinforce this idea that these are going to be parents who are going to make things difficult, right?
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> and you're like, and That's and all you're not... trying to do is like, yeah. Your best and the right. Well, all I'm trying to do is find out about, you know winding and contractions yeah, exactly. right i'm not i'm not here to challenge you but since i am here <laughs> and since you've refused to kind of be thoughtful about these things i am going to be the pain in the good arse you. Who, who says you know what if we did this a bit differently so hopefully those things are kind of always changing for the good yeah
2: can i ask about support and especially when you were going through the difficulties conceiving there's obviously a large community of women who do go through difficulties when it comes to IVF and IUI, etc. But from a from a heteronormative point of view, did you find that you were able to relate and have support with those groups? Or do you think because you were coming to it from a different queer perspective, there was not much support that you could relate to?
3: It's interesting. I think it's one of the things that has changed really rapidly, so I think when we were going through it, which, I, you know, isn't that long ago, it was a lot of these really creepy kind of online forums where the point is, you're, you know, even if you're reading them, the story never is never ends, right? Because if someone gets pregnant, they don't carry on telling you that story. They just get on with doing that. If somebody doesn't, they continue having their kind of difficult stories. If you see what I mean. So it's a sort mm. of, it's a, the support is there, but really people are are just kind of, reinforcing that cycle of disappointment for themselves now I can see now on when I now look at Instagram there are people who are so open about being in this journey and kind of supporting one another and you know it seems to me that that's completely changed I I think that now people would easily be able to kind of access the community of other queer people who are in that process and um, you speak a bit about in the book as well the fact that your
1: twins were premature and which must have been really really harrowing and just such a difficult time for you and is, is there anything that you might like to say to anyone listening who is perhaps in a similar situation in terms of just surviving that
3: Yeah. So, I mean, they were, they were born at 32 weeks. So they were kind of between (laughs) together. They were the kind of the weights of a a full-time baby, I guess. So kind of, they were just four or five pounds each and they were in hospital for quite a while. And I think the thing I would say is the thing that got us through it was the staff on the ward were such incredible, strong and straightforward people. That you could look to them and know that it would be okay. You know, and I think that was that was essential to our survival of it. And, and one of the people I, I write about who was a night nurse who just spoke to us as parents. And so in those kind of long nights where, you know, the babies are all kind of wired up and oxygen tubes and all of these things. And she would just say to us things like, so do you think they'd like to be in the same class when they go to school or do you think they'll be in different classes? Oh, that's so nice. And it was just such a powerful thing for her to do just to Mm -hmm. say this stage will be over. And Mm -hmm. they will, you know, they will go on to be little girls and you'll have to make those kind of decisions, not should we give them more IV antibiotics today? You know, it'll be who's going to have what lunchbox. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was it was such an important thing. And I think if you can if you're in that situation and all you're Mm -hmm. thinking about is what's the next Medical decision somehow, having faith that the next stage will come, I think is really really important beautiful, yeah, thank you
2: I think we could do like a six hour special with you, I feel, yeah. but just to to wrap up if you were if you were to briefly sum up what motherhood and parenthood means to you um, and what it means within your family how would you how would you sum that up or how that's changed throughout yeah writing the book as well how how do you feel your journey as a mother has changed and it enabled you to reflect back on your journey so far
3: so I'm really kind of suspicious of these kind of cheesy ideas that kind of parenthood changes you as a person and that you know it's the only way that you kind of learn who you really are but I'm also annoyed by the fact that I feel that about myself (laughs) you know so (laughs) I think it's it's as much about you know we've been we were talking earlier about you know, toddler tantrums and those kinds of things. And you really have to kind of learn how are you the kind of person who is just going to, you know, fight a tantrum with a tantrum? Or over time, are you someone who's going to learn from these experiences and kind of be the person that your children need you to be? And who they need you to be is always changing, right? So who they need you to be when they're a tiny baby in an incubator is not the person they need you to be at the school gate five years down the line so i think that sense of responsiveness maybe or something like less corporate than that <laughs> but kind of, you know like being being kind of self being self-aware i think is a really important kind of aspect of, of of parenting isn't it because it's you know the point is it stops being about you but you have to still be there at the end that's kind of the moral of the story i guess <laughs> you know yeah i think that's a really nice way of describing it that's really end. nice thank
2: you Claire and thank you so much listener for listening to this episode we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did I found Claire and her story and her viewpoint on everything fascinating and deeply interesting
1: so many of our guests I just wish we could just go out for a drink with I feel like we'd have a really fun night out with Claire we'd have some yes. nice drinks and dinner and just chew the fat talk about parenting
2: well what's stopping us let's do it
1: this is true we can so listener we would love to hear from you as well if you want to take Stu and i out for a dinner or a drink that we are do. available we're available um please do get in touch you can slip into our dms on instagram or twitter at somefamiliespod or you can email us somefamilies@storyhunter.co.uk.
2: Or do check out our website where everything is neatly and wonderfully housed at somefamiliespod.com. There are also full transcripts and past episodes there as well.
1: We'll be back next week with our last episode of the season. (gasps) So till then. Goodbye. See you later. This episode was produced and edited by Hattie Moyer.
2: Some Families is a Story Hunter production.
0: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts.
3: Here's a show that we recommend.